Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am once again your host, the one and only Kid Kong. I am joined today by Cal the Kaiju Guy and our good buddy, Ian. What's up? How you doing? Today we are going to be talking about the 1989 Batman movie. This is something that has been in the planning for a long time. Uh, I know I said originally I was going to be doing Life of Pi, however, this possibility came up and I was like, you know what, Life of Pi can wait another week. I don't care. It'll be all right. Batman was directed by Tim Burton. Now, Tim Burton, of course, you, you probably know the things that he's done, but I'll give you a quick rundown. He's done Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, The Corpse Bride, Big Fish. He did the most recent edition of Dumbo, and he's also done not only the original Frankenweenie, but then the 2012 Frankenweenie as well. It's written by Sam Hamm, who has written Mantis, Monkey Bone, and Masters of Horror, and produced by Josh Peters and Peter Gruber. Between the two of them, their films have grossed over $3 billion overall and have won 50-plus Academy Awards. These include A Star is Born from 1976, as well as 2018, The Witches of Eastwick, Clue, and Superman Returns. There were executive producers involved on that last one. It was released on June 23, 1989, produced on a budget of $48 million, and pulled in $411 million at the box office. Despite the many, many initial concerns the film had from the fan base, the film ended up being a massive commercial and finance success. It won numerous awards, including an Oscar, and it really kicked off the DC animated universe, and it even affected how Hollywood does modern marketing and development techniques of superhero genre, among other things. Basically, the idea behind the movie, we don't get a Batman origin story here. Batman already exists. The movie instead serves as a bit of an origin story for the Joker, as it were, and his dealings with Batman initially. Now, the first time I ever saw this movie, I was oh, about six or seven years old. Uh, it came on, I want to say, TNT. And my brother and I sat there, we watched it from start to finish, and we really liked it. Cal, do you remember how old you were the first time you saw it? I mean, I was pretty young. Like, I, I honestly can't. It wasn't long after it had come out on uh, home media. I know I know that much, but, I mean, you know, I'm not entirely sure. I, I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Ian, on the other hand, you saw it in theaters, didn't you? I did. Uh yeah, I'm I'm a little older than you guys, uh, if, if, if the listeners don't know, and I was actually in the hospital uh, in the summer of 88, and I was um, gifted while I was in the hospital with a Batman graphic novel, and of course, I, you know, I was into comic books and, you know, things like that, but uh, I had never really read a graphic novel, and so... That was given to me as a gift. Fell in love with it, and just with the the world of uh, you know Gotham and DC and everything like that. So a couple months after that, I it came to my attention that there was going to be this Batman movie, and uh, I was hyped from the get go. So for like that whole next year, you know, like I said, I was really looking forward to it, and I saw the we're going to discuss Batman yeah, yeah, here yeah, in a little yeah, while. Yeah, yeah, we yeah, will yeah. discuss that. Don't worry. But, but yeah, yeah. To, to to put it shortly, yes, I saw it in theaters. It was amazing. I, I would like to interject something. Uh, 
your your listeners know that this is something about me that I just like to do just for kicks and giggles because oh, yeah. I, I enjoy it. But you said that the film grossed four hundred and eleven million at yes, the box did. office in nineteen eighty nine, basically meaning today that would be the equivalent of nine hundred and sixty eight million dollars. Yes, it would have been just shy of yeah, a billion, right dollars. under a billion. So just put that into perspective for you that currently. The Batman with Robert Pattinson is in like what the high seven hundreds. It's in the low, or, the, the either low seven or high sixes. Yeah, something like that. Well, yeah, well, I, well I'll be generous and say eight hundred million. Basically, all of the hype that was behind that movie, adjusted for inflation, the nineteen eighty nine Batman film outgrossed it. Yes, so yeah. that's pretty impressive. Yeah, we're we're talking like MCU level easy money. Easy, yeah. yeah. And not just basic MCU. We're talking no. like Avenger built Lego. up to yeah. something. Yes, uh, the cast actually wasn't that extensive as far as amount of names. It was more extensive in the names involved. Uh, the character of the Joker, of course, Jack Napier, was played by Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson has been in films for a very long time and has actually been nominated for an Academy Award in every decade that he was active as an actor from the '60s until his final film role. Uh, which includes the original Little Shop of Horrors film production, uh, As Good As It Gets, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Departed. Um, Ian and I can list off quite a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's been in a lot. I'm, I'm not as near as big of a fan of Jack Nicholson as either of you. I mean, I like him. He's just, he's never really been a selling point for me yeah. in films. But I'll, I'll tell anybody that I love him in this movie, and it is hands down my favorite role that he's ever done. I think it's probably, Ian and I were actually discussing this earlier while we were watching the movie, because we watched it right before we did this. Uh, this is probably, as far as his roles go, one of his finer roles. To me, it's second only to his role in As Good As It Gets, as far as his best on-screen portrayals of any character that he's done. Yeah, it's definitely up there. A younger version of Jack that appears in a flashback was played by Hugo Blick, who's probably best known for a couple of episode runs on Jeeves and Wooster, which starred Laurie and Fry. I actually have that entire series on DVD, if you ever want to borrow it. It's fantastic. Bruce Wayne, oh, Batman, was played by Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton, of course, has been in Mr. Mom, Beetlejuice, Pacific Heights, Multiplicity. He was in Jack Frost. Did you ever see that one? With uh, yeah. he, he plays a father who dies near Christmas time, and his son wishes his father would come back, so his father... Inhabits the body of a snowman. I'm, I'm aware of what it's about. And that's <laughs> primarily the reason why I've had zero desire to yeah. see that movie. He was also <laughs> in First Daughter. He provided a voice role in, in uh, Cars. He was in the 2014 RoboCop. He was in Birdman. Most recently in Dumbo. And also in the MCU, he has portrayed Adrian Toomes, the Vulture. He's also going to be reprising the role as Batman in the upcoming Flash and Batgirl that we're getting from DC. Didn't, didn't, doesn't he set a record with that now? He does. Like, basically, the longest time, like, yeah. being able to play, like, the same character. I believe yeah. it was held by Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman. It was, and he's broken both. No, it was them, but then didn't it get broken by uh, Tobey Maguire and uh, Willem Dafoe for Spider-Man and even Goblin? Even if it did, he broke Well, no, no, out. I'm just saying, like, it bro they broke... Professor X and Wolverine, but now he's breaking yes. theirs. Yeah. Uh, Vicky Vale is played by Kim Basinger. Is it Basinger or Bassinger? I think it just depends it's, on who's saying. Whatever. I've heard, I've heard both. <laughs> uh, she was in The Natural, Nine and a Half Weeks, Cool World, 
Wayne's World 2, 8 Mile, Cellular, Charlie St. Cloud, and then two of the Fifty Shades of Grey films. Okay, so here's a question for you. Did she call him Elliot or Alexander at the end of the movie? I thought she called him Elliot. She did call him Elliot. The problem is his name is Alexander Knox in the film. Yeah. That somehow snuck its way through. Alexander Knox, led by Robert Wool. Robert Wool was in Flash Dance, Good Morning Vietnam, The Bull Durham, Blaze, Blue Chips, Good Burger, Monkey Bone, and on TV he was in Arliss. That is the second time I have mentioned Monkey Bone on this episode, and I'm not exactly comfortable with that. I hope I don't mention it a third time. You ever what, seen what, Monkey Bone? What, what, no. You just mentioned it a third time. Kind of. <laughs> Let's move along. <laughs> Commissioner Gordon was played by Pat Hangel. Pat Hangel passed away in 2009. Pat Hangel was in many... Clint Eastwood films, many westerns, mm-hmm. including Hang 'em High, but he's also appeared in Maximum Overdrive, The Quick and the Dead, Muppets from Space, Talladega Nights, and he provided the voice of the narrator in The Land Before Time. The first film I ever saw him in was a Steve McQueen western film called uh, Nevada Smith. Yes. He, he was a, uh, a pretty much the right-hand man of a warden yeah. in a Louisiana prison. Harvey Dent was played by Billy D. Williams. Billy D. Williams, of course, has been in Last Angry Men, uh, The Take, Star Wars, Fear City, Woo, and An Undercover Brother. He's done a lot of television movies. I mean, a lot of television movies. And he also appeared in nine episodes of Dynasty. Alfred was played by Michael Goh, who passed in 2011. Now, Michael Goh began acting all the way back in the 40s. Many of these films, unfortunately, most of my listeners will not recognize. However, the ones they will recognize, he was in Corpse Bride, as well as his final film role, Alice in Wonderland. Carl Grissom, who is the mob boss character that is uh, the Joker's boss, was played by Jack Palance, who died in 2006. Now, Jack Palance is in Shane, The Professionals, Shay, uh, Hawkeye the Slayer, Young Guns, City Slickers 1 and 2, and Tango and Cash. Now, he's been nominated for three different Academy Awards. He won one for his role in City Slickers, which came over 35 years after his last nomination for one, which actually gives him the record of longest gap between nominations where he actually won. Joker's right-hand man, Bob, played by character actor Tracy Walter. He's appeared in over 100 films, including Clone and the Destroyer, Matilda, Silence of the Lambs, Death to Smoochie, and on television, he's appeared on... Can't read my own handwriting on that one, so I'll move on. Alf, Nash, Bridges, and he also appeared, Cal, you'll recognize him. He played the psychiatrist Monica dated briefly in an episode of Friends, mm. who psychoanalyzed all of her friends. Yep. And finally, the character Lieutenant Eckhart was played by William Hootkins. William Hootkins, probably the only other notable role you're going to recognize him. He played Porkins in Star Wars. By the late 70s, the popularity of Batman has started to wane. And CBS ordered the next Batman film to be Batman in Space. I'm going to let that one sit there for just a moment. And it would have been a musical. Wow. (laughs) Fortunately, in 1979, two producers bought the film rights from CBS and from DC because they wanted to make a definitive Batman film. They wanted to bring it back to the roots from Kane and Finger. They wanted to be dark, gritty. You know, he's a creature of the night. He's a detective. There there was nothing campy they wanted to do about it. However, because of that, not a single studio bit on the project because in their mind, Batman had been so heavily associated with camp between the Adam West and the Super Friends TV series and all that. They were like, no one is going to accept a serious Batman. They were flat out told that at uh, Universal. Boy, were they wrong. 
Yeah. <laughs> One of the producers, uh, whose last name was Uslan, I cannot pronounce his first name, and I'm terribly sorry, I'm not even going to try, uh, wrote a script, and he called it The Return of the Batman. He wanted to do this to give people an idea of what he was going with, because the way they were trying to pitch it, it was falling flat, so he felt that if he wrote out a script idea and let that get out, it might have a little bit of a better chance. And funny enough, his script idea became very comparable to The Dark Knight Returns. However, it predates that by six years. Uh, Peters and Gruber joined in for uh, producing and decided to go a similar route to Superman from 1978. Once again, it was turned down by Universal. However, it was announced midway through 1980 that it was going to be made on a budget of $15 million, despite the fact that it did not have any companies attached to it, it didn't have any production companies, it didn't have distribution, nothing. They just went ahead and announced, now we're going to go ahead and do it, and this is what we're planning on doing. As they were shopping it around, Warner Brothers accepted and decided they wanted to go ahead and take care of production and distribution. The initial script was completed in 1983, and this would have focused on Batman and Dick Grayson's origins with Joker and Rupert Thorne as the villains. They took the inspiration of this from Batman's Strange Apparitions, and the artist that was involved in that comic arc was actually attached to do the concept art and was announced for a mid-85 release. They wanted an unknown actor for Batman. William Holdness would have played Commissioner Gordon. David Niven would have been Alfred. And Peter O'Toole would have played the Penguin. Peter O'Toole's Penguin would have been a mobster whose body temperature needed to be kept cooler in order for him to live. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like Mr. Freeze. That sounds exactly like yeah. Mr. Freeze. Holden and Niven died in 1981 and 1983 respectively, so that was not able to pan out. Uh, Joe Dante was attached to direct at one point. Joe Dante, of course, would go on to direct... Inner Space and Gremlins, as was Ivan Redman. And Ivan Redman wanted Bill Murray as Batman and Eddie Murphy as Robin. Jeez. Thank God that didn't happen. Yeah. No. I love Bill Murray, but that would have been awful. I have no comment. <laughs> Not even worth Over the course of the next several years, over nine rewrites were done to this script, and at one point Wes Craven was considered as a director. However, he chose to pass on it to continue on with his horror movies that he was making. Due to the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Warner Brothers hired Tim Burton, who then promptly had his wife write a brand new script. His wife at the time, rather. Yeah. Took her 30 days because he felt that every other script that he had read for this was too campy. He's like, Batman does not need to be camp. He was determined that Batman could be made seriously and would be taken seriously as such. Uh, they commissioned a writer named Englehart to write a new script. Due to the success of The Killing Joke and The Dark Knight Returns, it would have much more of a serious tone. However, he still felt there were too many characters in it, so they removed both Dick Grayson and the Penguin. Grayson ultimately was going to have a cameo in the, the finished product in 1989. However, at the end of the, like the, the, the 11th hour, they decided not to go through with that. So concept art is all that exists of that. I think that was the right move. It would have involved Batman swinging through and punching one of Joker's goons who was trying to take Dick from his parents. So, uh, At that point, Tim Burton approached Sam Hamm, who was a massive combo fan and indeed a big Batman fan, to write a screenplay based on the script. Hamm felt that an origin story would be unnecessary because in his mind, if you're going to see a Batman movie, you know who and how Batman is who he is. They could. There's nothing they could not do with flashbacks that would not be subtle enough for you to get that they could accomplish by devoting half the movie to his origin. This was a good idea. It allowed you to get right on with who Batman was and everything with this. 
However, despite the fact that they liked the script, Warner Brothers was less than thrilled with this. Uh, they were kind of waffling on dropping the product altogether. At that point, Tim Burton took it upon himself and had bootlegs of the script released at many comic stores throughout California and New York for fans to read. The success of Beetlejuice in 1988, coupled with the positive fan reaction to this bootleg script, finally got Warner Brothers to greenlight production on the film. The only problem that they really had, the fans were not thrilled about Tim Burton being the director. He was not really known for this type of thing. When Michael Keaton was cast, they got downright angry about it. Over 40,000 Protest letters were sent into Warner Brothers' office over this. At this point, Warner Brothers went ahead and hired both Bob Kane and Bill Finger to work as consultants on the film. However, Finger would not be credited in any form of Batman multimedia until 2016. Yeah. Which is... A crime? An absolute crime. Putting both Kane and Finger on this did help a lot of fan concern because they felt that if you've got the creators of it in here... We should be okay. When it came time for casting, however, before Michael Keaton would be cast, Mel Gibson, Kevin Costner, Charlie Sheen, Tom Selleck, Bill Murray again by Warner Brothers direction, Harrison Ford, and Dennis Quaid were all considered for the role of Bruce Wayne. The studio wanted what would be an obvious action star once Bill Murray turned it down, and members of the studio approached Pierce Brosnan directly to offer him the role. He turned it down... Because, in his words, I have no desire in doing a comic book movie. Ha, ha, Here we are well, 30 years he, later. Yeah, he's Dr. He's Fate, Dr. Fate in Black Adam. Oh, oh, it's kind of funny book. how when this movie came out and showed how successful superhero movies could be and how much money they could make, it's kind of funny how his tune changed a little bit on that. Hmm. Tim Burton wanted William Dafoe and had William Dafoe audition for the role of Batman, not for the Joker. A lot. It's been a very... Widely misreported thing that he auditioned for the Joker. He did not. He auditioned for Batman. However, he himself did not feel he was right for the role. One of the producers suggested Keaton. Due to having seen Keaton in the film clean and sober and liking the dramatic aspects that he took there. Tim Burton, having recently worked with, with Keaton on Beetlejuice, felt that there was a darkness to Keaton that he could tap into that could help with that and agreed to that. As I stated before. There was a lot of concern about this from the fans. A lot of fans looked at this as, you're putting Mr. Mom as Batman? That's it. That is exactly what was There's said. also the fact that uh, Michael Keaton, while an in-shape man, was not above average in size in any way, shape, or form. He's 5'9", five 5'10", foot five foot maybe, and about a buck 80, buck 75. Not, not a very physically imposing looking. No, individual. not at all. Not in any way, shape, or form. And actually, I think that's something that actually helped out in the actual movie itself. Joker. Tim Curry, David Bowie, John Lithgow, Brad Dourif, Ray Liotta, and James Woods were all considered and auditioned at various points. John Lithgow personally talked Tim Burton out of casting him as the Joker, feeling that he would not have done well in the role, that the movie would not have been that great. However, upon seeing it, he said it's one of the bigger regrets he has. I love John Lithgow. I think he could have been just fine as the Joker in a more, I don't want to say a campy role because he proved with Cliffhanger and then again in Dexter that he can play menacing and sinister very, very well. Yeah. 
But I don't know that he would have necessarily fit with the, what this movie was trying to do. Plus, he would have absolutely towered over Michael Keaton. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's a big man. He's a very he's big man. He's about 6'4", six, 6'5", six, <laughs> somewhere in that area. Uh, I think Brad Dourif would have been very interesting. I agree. I think the reason Brad Dourif ultimately did not get that was because between Chucky and having already been with uh, uh, Nicholson in a film, they felt like they wanted to go a different direction on that. Like, We've already seen him in roles where he has to be around people and he has to play someone who's mentally disturbed. Let's move on from him and do somebody else. Burton, actually... I, I don't know. I think that... I think he would have been fine. Potentially could have been a missed opportunity. I, I, trust me, I agree. <laughs> I think Ray Liotta would have been a little too aggressive. Uh, rest in peace. <laughs> James Woods, I wouldn't have taken him seriously as the Joker at all. I just... I couldn't. I don't know. I, I, I can see James Woods as, as the Joker. I don't know who James Woods is. Off the top of my head, so well. Uh, let's see. What would James Woods have been that you would recognize? Uh, you ever seen John Q? No. Have you seen Contact with Jodie Foster? No. They make fun of him on Family Guy a lot. Yeah, they do. A lot. He's the ooh, piece of candy guy. I'm 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 googling him right now. <laughs> Sorry for the pause. Um, while he's doing that, I'll continue talking. I'm I'm well. I'm looking at pictures of him and. Don't recognize him? I have no idea who that guy is. I think, to me, probably the biggest missed opportunity ever as the Joker is Tim Curry. Uh, to the point that Tim Curry was supposed to voice the Joker in the animated series, but he was found to be a little too scary. Well, he, he actually did some test footage for it, didn't he? And, he did. yeah, they, they were just like, not we, only, we, can't, we can't let kids listen he to did, this. He did <laughs> test footage for that, and also he, was, he also terrified four grown men when he auditioned for Judge Doom in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And they're like, no. Too scary. That would have been amazing. It yeah. would have. Yeah. Now, Tim Burton wanted John Glover for the role of the Joker. For those of you who are not familiar with John Glover, the only one I can jump to immediately that you'll recognize him from is John Glover played Lionel Luther in Smallville. Uh, if you've watched other Batman films, he did appear in Batman and Robin. Uh, studio, however, did not want John Glover because at the time, John Glover was predominantly a television and theater actor. They wanted a movie star. Robin Williams lobbied hard for the role to the point that he actually showed up at Warner Brothers in a Joker-like getup to show them what he could do. However, the studio's top choice had been Jack Nicholson since 1980. He accepted with some conditions. Nicholson's agreement and contract was an off-the-clock agreement, which specified which hours he was entitled both off every day, which included his way to and from recording. He also was entitled to be off during all Los Angeles Lakers home games. <laughs> this is standard in every single movie he has done. If it's going to take place during basketball season, he has Lakers games off. To the point that the Lakers Association has said, when Jack dies, we will not be redoing his seat for sale for anybody. It will be left open for him afterwards. His scenes were also dictated that they must be done in three weeks. This did not happen. Uh, filming lapsed to last 106 days. Hmm. Nicholson was not thrilled by this. However, he also agreed to reduce his standard fee from $10 million to $6 million. In exchange for getting a cut of the film's earnings, including any and all associated merchandise. Jeez. Good God. That still continues today, by the way. So basically, he made a Star Wars deal. His first, just the first year after this film came out, 
it's estimated that he made an additional $95 million off of merchandise alone. And he continues to make somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to $15 million per year off of this movie. He also, <laughs> he also had to have total approval over any and all makeup designers that would work on his Joker makeup. He fired three of them personally. Two of them he reduced to tears. Sounds like Jack. <laughs> Finally, he said, under no circumstances, anybody to be billed above him. He got top billing in the film. Yes, he absolutely did. <laughs> now, as far as the others go, Sean Young was actually cast as Vicki Vale. For those of you who don't know who Sean Young is, she was in Stripes. She played Einhorn in Ace Ventura. Uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner. She was in Blade Runner. That's true. She had to withdraw shortly before filming would begin due to getting hurt while horseback riding. Warner Brothers, when they found out she was hurt horseback riding, got extremely spooked by this. With for, good reason. For obvious reasons. With very good reason. And at that point told her that, you know, if we're going to cast you in moves going forward, you're not riding horses before, during, or after production of these films. You need to wait until it's done completely before you would do that. At that point, Kim Basinger stepped in. She... Even fitter wardrobe, so she was fine there. Sean Young wanted that role so badly and wanted so badly to be a part of a Batman movie that when Batman Returns was announced and they were looking for a Catwoman, she uh, made a homemade Catwoman suit out of leather and showed up in Tim Burton's house in his bed. That's now dedication. You, now you know why that uh, why Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman ended up in Penguin's bed in that film. Yeah, He was extremely uncomfortable with it, and I don't think he's worked with Sean Young ever since. Now, uh, Tim Burton was a massive fan of the Hammer House horror films. He's, he loves Christopher Lee. He loves all them. Michael Goh had worked on a lot of those. He was offered the role sight unseen and said, you don't even have to audition. You've got it if you want it. Nice. Now, Alexander Knox was played by Wool, right? Yes. He was cast off a single audition. Less than 30 seconds of an audition. They're like, yep, you're good. Originally, he was meant to die during the climax of the film. However, throughout the course of filming, they liked him so much, they changed his fate at the end of the movie so that he would stay alive. Okay. <laughs> if you like him in Batman, you, sh you should watch Cobb. I've seen Cobb. Okay, okay. That's, you also, that's also directed towards the listeners. If, yes. you, if oh, okay. you like him in Batman, you need to watch Cobb with Tommy Lee Jones. Like, yeah, it's absolutely. hilarious. <laughs> he, he was also in Good Morning Vietnam, and not only should our listeners watch that movie, Ian should watch that movie. I'm not against it. I've never not wanted to watch it. I just haven't had the opportunity. Now, Tim Burton wanted Billy D. Williams to play Harvey Dent for a couple of reasons. One, he's a fan of Star Wars, and he liked him as Lando Calrissian. Two, he felt that the idea of having Harvey Dent turn into Two-Face, he'd be able to explore a white-black dynamic with Two-Face in film. rest of the cast were done in quick order. Uh, eventually, Billy D. Williams' character would be recast with Tommy Lee Jones, where he really just played another version of the Joker. Yeah. Uh, and what's hilarious is you watch that movie, watch his performance, and know that he personally, at one point during production, gave up and walked up to J Tim, uh, Jim Carrey, gave him a hug, and told him, I cannot stand your buffoonery. They didn't get along. Yeah. No. <laughs> the rest of the cast was done in relatively quick order. Now, Gotham was purposely made in order to look dark, disgusting, and bleak. 
Uh, the, the set designer and prop designer was Anton First, who Tim Burton really wanted after watching The Company of Wolves because he worked on that. He really wanted him for Beetlejuice and was unable to get him. However, they were able to work it out to where he got him for this film. Deliberately, they chose to mix different building architectural styles to make it clash and make it look like it's just everything just thrown together. Like they're not taking care of the city because crime is so high and everything else is going on. Yeah, it's it, uh, the Gotham always struck me as a mixture of like Art Nouveau and uh, German Expressionism. Yeah, Tim Burton said that as far as like design on the city and everything else, it was the easiest he's done on any movie he's ever been involved in because Anton First and him agreed on everything. He's like, it's like he was reading my mind. There was no conflicts there at all. Uh, Bob Ringwood turned down the uh, costume design on License to Kill to work on this film. Yeah. Good move. Yep. Now, <laughs> one of the things that he found challenging about this was the fact that Michael Keaton was an averagely built man. He's like, you know, you see Batman back in the comics back in those days. He's this six foot four, barrel chested, square jawed, muscular, looks like he can rip the damn car in half to get to a criminal inside. And he, you don't really see that with Keaton. So a lot of the costume process was done to accentuate what he could about Keaton. Mm. Like, that's why if you notice his suit is, it has the built on muscles and everything like that. Uh, Keaton was claustrophobic and dis very much disliked that suit. He could not turn his head. Once he was in the suit, he could not go to the bathroom until they were done filming. It was difficult for him to eat while wearing that suit because of it being on his neck. However, he used that to help his performance there. A lot of Gotham City was also influenced by the film Brazil, which was directed by Terry oh, Gillis. Yeah. Altogether, they had 28 different designs for the suit. They had 25 different capes they would use for various purposes. Like you'd see some capes where he would be running, where he'd be sitting, where he'd have them out like big bat wings, or he'd be going up into the air, coming down from the air. And six different heads. They built all this, just on the suit alone, they spent over $250,000 on this. God. <laughs> and of course, when the fans saw what the suit looked like, they did not like it right off the bat. This is true. No pun intended. Now, the Batmobile was designed by Keith Short, and he based it on a Chevy Impala, but he would add jet engines, fins, various things to make it look like it would belong to a character like Batman. The, that specific vehicle, they only made one, is now owned by Jeff Dunham. And Jeff Dunham had a Corvette engine installed in it in order to make it street legal, and he drives it when he's home. How in the world did that come about? Jeff Dunham is one of the top five highest-grossing comedians of all time and makes enough money that he was able to buy it. General Motors was originally uh, contracted to build the Batmobile. They offered $6 million for the rights to do so. However, in exchange for that... They wanted all rights to the patents for what they were building. <laughs> so they were going to sell Batmobiles. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, Warner Brothers said no. I'd have been okay with that. Yeah, I can't but, blame uh, them for trying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, there was intense media interest about this film. To the point that Warner Brothers decided after beginning things on the, the back lot in California to go ahead and move all the production to Pinewood Studios in England. 
And they gave most of their designers three weeks' notice on that. Which made it a little bit more difficult for some of their set pieces. Yeah, I would imagine so. Uh, filming began October 10th, 1988, and lasted until February 14th of 1989. They used 18 different sound stages. Sometimes their filming dates ran as long as 16 hours. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> as expected, Jack Nicholson had his own private jet to fly him to and from Lakers games. It would fly him into LAX, and he would catch a helicopter. Helicopter would land on the helicopter pad at the Lakers Stadium, where they would play. Jeez. That's dedication. Oh, he's been ejected from so many games, or tried to eject him from so many games. Like, he's thrown things at referees. The man is a die-hard Lakers fan. Oh, I'm, I'm, you I'm will not find a bigger Lakers fan. Tim Burton has stated that this is probably the least favorite film he has ever had to direct, and it has nothing to do with the movie itself. It had everything to do with the media. Two full reels of footage were stolen during production of this film, and they tried to leak them so that people could see what was going on. Publicists were offering sound designers, stage designers, stagehands, anybody that would willing, was willing to listen, as much as $25,000 for a picture of Jack Nicholson as the Joker. Because that was not revealed until like the very, like the last possible second before the movie was coming out. People had no idea what he looked like at all. When it was all said and done, uh, Tim Burton is not overtly a fan of the film. He said, as far as a movie goes, it's like, I've done better movies. I'm not really worried about that. It, it was an entertaining action thing. It, was, it, had, it wasn't a story, so I'm good. I don't know that I agree with that. I really don't. I thought this was a fantastic movie. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> I, didn't, I, mean, I didn't know you was looking for my recognition on that. So. <laughs> During filming, of course, like many other films, they would modify writing. They'd rewrite little portions here and there. There became a problem. The 1988 Writers Guild strike. When that happened, Ham was not allowed to do the rewrites. So they brought in Warren Scarin to do them, and he would ultimately receive a credit, but he undid a lot of the different things that Ham wanted with the film, and while Ham considered this to be unnecessary, he was very critical of it, he blamed Warner Brothers, not Warren Scarin, for it. Because Warner Brothers could have bought out his contract from the Guild in order to let him do the rewrites, and they didn't want to do that. Which, I don't blame them for doing that, because if you do that... That's kind of a big middle finger to unions, and you're going to make it very difficult for people to want to work with you going forward. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Keaton would use a lot of the experience that he had got from his comedic movies that he'd been in in order to do scenes with Vale to make them have more of a realistic kind of banter, a back and forth between them, as it were. He considered that the way he was playing Batman, he's like, this Batman, this Bruce Wayne, this is a logic freak. This is someone who is extremely, extremely paranoid about being discovered as Batman. So he takes great pains to disguise the fact like he would wear contacts when in reality he'd need to wear glasses, things like like he and it was his idea to actually speak in a lower register as Batman than he would as Bruce, which would of course be used and abused by Christian Bale in the Dark Knight trilogy. Like heavily. That was so terrible. The like, first I, movie wasn't bad. He I, wasn't that bad. I love the Dark Knight trilogy, but yeah, the voice is just, it's always something that I'm going to be like, this this multi-billionaire couldn't have come up with some kind of technology or something like that to 
to alter his voice. Instead, it's just. I'm the. I'm not. <laughs> you sound like Claw from Inspector Gadget. <laughs> it's just like no. So. Well, Schneider addressed that. Yeah. Yeah, he did. One of the other things that they were very heavily wanting to do was make sure that Gotham City would be seen almost as a character of the film as well. Whether it's the people that you see on the street, the design of the building, the way things collapse. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Now, the initial climax of the film called for the Joker to kill Vicky, which would have set Batman into a fury and resulted in Batman killing him. For those of you who are listening right now, I want every single one of you to understand... The Dark Knight trilogy that so heavily was like Batman does not kill, Batman has killed before. Right. Sansa. Sorry, that was a that was a, a, a little pupper barking. Anyway, Batman has killed before. In his earliest appearances, he had a gun. Batman killed so many people during this movie with bombs, throwing them off of ledges. He had multiple miniguns attached to not just... The Batmobile, but the plane as well. The Batwing. Well, yeah, well, I mean, I cracked the joke whenever the Batwing, whenever he was coming towards Joker, and, you know, you see the tips of the missiles come out, and the freaking machine gun fold out, and all that kind of stuff, and then in a very mocking-type voice was like, but Batman doesn't kill. <laughs> like, right. You know? like, And whenever he goes to drive into the building... That we all knew he was going to drop the bombs and blow up and everything. And I was just like, ah, oh, yes, the whole Batman murder everybody sequence. We all right. this one. <laughs> <laughs> that initial climax was written and decided on by Tim Burton. Peters did not like that and reworked the climax without telling Tim Burton. Even commissioning the build of the cathedral set, which was over 40 feet tall and stretched over 60 feet in diameter, and it cost over $100,000 to do this. This film was already $22 million over budget by this point. <laughs> His exact words were, Tim will understand. <laughs> hey. <laughs> that's Good on him, man. Ballsy, man. <laughs> that's, all <I've, laughs> that's all I've got to say. <laughs> Some aspects of the climax in the church were direct homages to the film Vertigo. Uh, one of the th really heavy themes they wanted to go with with this film was, in their words, this is really a duel of freaks. You have two guys who have both darker sides of their personalities that clash with one another. And that ultimately, like, one creates the other and then that one creates him in return. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, just got very, very heavily influenced by the killing joke aspects of The Dark Knight Returns. They took some aspects from Strange Apparitions. They even borrowed certain aspects from when Joker first appeared in the original comic series. Mm -hmm. Now, when it came time for the music, Danny Elfman had worked with Tim Burton before and was hired on to do that. Elfman was very concerned about doing the music for this film because this was by far the biggest project he had ever worked on. Producers, in addition to wanting a, a traditional score on the film also wanted pop music in the film. This was shortly after movies like Top Gun and the others had come out that it included that modern, at the time, pop music in the films. To that end, they wanted Prince to do Joker's music, and they wanted Michael Jackson to do Batman and any and all romantic scenes music as well. Burton protested this, because this was not his style him. of film. He's like, I, that's not my style of music. He doesn't like the commercialization 
aspect of it. He's like, you already are going to be able to sell toys. There's going to be all kinds of stuff that comes out of this. You don't need to attach modern songs to this to make this a bigger deal. However, Tim Burton is a very big Prince fan. He was on board with that and personally went and spoke with Prince about it. And Prince agreed to not only do the music for the Joker, but he wanted to write it as well. He was very happy with that. And you can see music videos from this movie where he is half Joker and half himself. When it came time for merchandise, I'm sorry, marketing for this film, they divided or they designed well over a hundred different posters to try and advertise this, none of which were felt to be satisfactory. Ultimately, they decided to just go with the simple black and gold bat logo. Because they're like, we can build intrigue off of this. General Motors wanted to then design an actual Batmobile to use in auto racing as advertising <laughs> for it. This was also turned down by the studio. At this point, fans knew that no matter how many times they complained, no matter how many times they protested, it was already made, it was moving forward, there was nothing they could do. So petitions began going around to boycott the film because of Michael Keaton and Tim Burton's involvement. When they found out about this and saw that several movie theaters were actually considering pulling out a showing, like movie theater chains, which would have cost them over 600 screens by the time it was done, they quickly threw together a bunch of scenes for a trailer that had no sound to it, just some of Danny Elfman's score. When the trailer ended, the audiences had given Michael Keaton a standing ovation for what they had seen as Batman. Hmm. Needless to say... Problems were, you know, dealt with at that point. I'm going to turn this next part over to Ian because he actually lived it. Uh, part of the marketing campaign for this was labeled as Batmania. They, they sold over $750 million worth of merchandise, as well as spending money on publicity and everything. Ian, what was that like to have lived through that? That was actually pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, aside from your, you know... Uh, almost required action figures, posters, trading cards. Uh, I had a, a Batmobile telephone. Um, was it a rotary phone? I'm not trying to be funny. I'm, I'm no, no, no. It, it was not. Serial. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. They were serial. I know. T-shirts, keychains. I had a, a, a piggy bank. That was him from like the, the torso up mm -hmm. with his arms crossed and you put the quarter like... On his uh, shoulder blades area? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah. Commercials? Oh, dude. Uh, just I, probably name it, and there was something out there for it at that time. Laundry detergent. Somewhere. I would not be surprised. <laughs> like, of all things. But, but, but like, okay. I, I well, no, you say of all things. What is one of the things Joker does in the film? Well, long yeah, detergent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. I mean, okay. I specifically remember the Batman serial, which was really just a terrible knockoff of Captain Crunch. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that a lot of times that's what licensed serials are and all that kind of stuff. Like, um, my wife has a has a box of little uh, Little Mermaid cereal. Like, I'm not gonna lie. Like, it's Rice Krispies. Like, I'm not gonna lie. A lot of times, like. Um, you know, around Halloween, they always come out with, like, you know, Frankenberry and Count Chocula oh, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And I love it. I stuck, I've still got boxes in my pantry from this last Halloween because I'm like, I'm not running out. <laughs> <laughs> but anywho, but anywho, 
like a lot of times they just you know it's the same cereal they'll just change like some shapes and symbols and stuff like that because i was in walmart this has been a while back like months ago and i saw some pokemon cereal and yeah. i was like i was like i'm an adult i'll try it got it ate some of it and i was like it tastes like frankenberry yeah like it's then not too long after that they came out with a ghostbusters themed cereal got that and i'm like yeah again Fra frankenberry with strawberry and all that kind of yeah. stuff. I'm like, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I had Batman sheets on my bed. As did I. Dude, I... Are we talking back when you were a child or currently? <laughs> I wish I still had those sheets, <laughs> man. Yeah, I was told that having uh, dinosaur sheets as a 27-year-old man with a 2-year-old was inappropriate, so I had to change them. My dad had Garfield sheets till he was like 30, so, you know... I'm gonna be 35 in a few weeks, and I've already and I've already told Emily more than once. If you ever come home and you see like some kind of Batman, Superman, Godzilla, something related sheets, pillow covers, and all that kind of stuff, I said, mind your business. Yeah. I said it's just something to sleep on. You don't need to take it that personally. Yeah. Okay, I, I was nine years old when this movie came out. Uh, I had a Batman fanny pack. Uh, tennis shoes, shoelaces, you know, t-shirts. Did McDonald's have deals for this kind of stuff too? I don't think the I don't think the 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 uh, fast food toys came about until Batman Returns. Yeah, because they they had problems with that because of the mature or exactly dark matter that that had had. Yeah, because I mean, okay, I remember my dad was actually a little upset that my mom took me to see this movie because it was PG thirteen. And I was nine. Well, that's just parental guidance for anybody younger than the age of, nine, of 13. Right, so. right. But, I mean, you know, this was... This, this was also 1989 PG-13. Exactly. Like, this is not a kid's film. No. Um, no, it's just... It's one of those... Like I, I want to say that they brought back a version of the Bat Dance for this as well. And MTV would air, like, different music videos from the movie and things building up to it. Like, it was... Batmania was a very, very real thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, the like of which we really haven't seen something like that since. Like, I can't think no. of too many things where they have spent or sold nearly a billion dollars worth of merchandise for something prior to its release. And this is nearly a billion dollars in 1989. Yeah. The, the, okay. The, having lived through both, the only thing comparable to the 89 Batmania I can think of is the explosion of the Ninja Turtles. That's it. Hmm. That would have been shortly after that. Well, yeah. it, do it doesn't happen all that often now just because everything is so oversaturated. True. I mean, back in that time, whenever this Batman film came out, I mean, this was an entire, like, different game changer for Batman. Um... You know, people didn't have their phones to where they could just flip it open and constantly look at any kind of media that they wanted and all of that kind of stuff. They just they just didn't have right. it. And so, yeah, for something back then when something like this would come out, like, it was a big freaking deal. But now, I mean, even though I personally didn't like the film, I'll use uh, Robert Pattinson's The Batman as an example. Like, that film comes out. And, you know, yeah, there's a lot of people that's like, okay, we'll see what it's like. We'll see how he does in the role and everything. But there were a whole lot of people that was just like, okay, it's just another Batman movie. Yeah. 
So well, that's what happened. <laughs> you have, I don't know, thirty. In the last thirty years, we've had what fifteen Batman movies. Mm. I mean, we've had since well since nineteen eighty nine. We've had Batman, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. Uh, the Dark Knight trilogy, Mask of the Phantasm, uh, Mask of the Phantasm, uh, um, Sub Zero, Sub Zero, Batwoman, M- M- the Mystery of the Batwoman. That was theatrically released. Okay, yeah, that one, and then uh, BVS, and then the Batman Justice League. So we've yes, also the- got we've also got the Snyder Cut of Justice League, which is a different movie, despite what its haters want yeah. to call it. Yeah, so. and then also Suicide Ben Affleck Squad. has appeared as Batman in Suicide Squad, and you know, and he's going to be. Batman's going to be in The Flash as well. Like That's a lot of movies to have this character in in a not big chunk of time. That's just in my lifetime. Yeah, that's since that's since 1989. Like, that's not counting the Adam West appearances and the old like black and white serials yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. Like TV series. Yeah, different TV things series, cartoon shows. Like, oh my God, we didn't even talk about the uh, animated shows for Batman and all, all right. that. So yeah, by the time... Like, heavily oversaturated. If you whenever will. this film came out in 89, yeah, there was a lot of people that was like, they'd never seen a Batman movie in theaters before. Like, yeah, we're going to go check this out. Whereas now, like I said, it's just like, eh. And I, I feel like, like that... Another Batman? Like, yeah, another yeah. Batman. Yeah, I feel God, like they're rebooting over, that again. You I feel know? like that oversaturation that it's dealing with might have played a part in with Warner's new merger... One of their mandates is they want to focus more on Superman. They want to bring Superman back. Because we have, apart from Man of Steel, the last thing we got before that was Superman Returns, and then before mm-hmm. that we didn't have hardly anything. Like, like it's, it's been so long since that character was such a main focal. Okay, like if we're we're talking straight up just Superman at this point compared to Batman in the same time frame, nineteen eighty nine. Okay, so since nineteen eighty nine for Superman, we've had. Superman Returns, Man of Steel, BVS, Justice League, Snyder Cut. Five. Compared to the 15-16 that we just mentioned. Yeah. Like, it's... And I, I don't care what anybody says. Yes, I'm a Superman fan. He's my favorite hero. Has been ever since I was... I'm old enough to remember. He's literally the longest running franchise that I've ever been a part of. I'm not saying this just because I'm a fan of him and there's a little rivalry between Batman fans and Superman fans for who's the most popular and all that. It is one of the dumbest marketing decisions of all time that Warner Brothers in the last few years basically decided we're going to put all of our focus on Batman and we're just going to ignore Superman. Yeah. Yeah. Superman is considered to be one of the most recognizable characters. The S-Shield is one of the most recognizable symbols. I believe just two years ago, the S-Shield actually won a worldwide poll that was done by something as the single most recognizable symbol ever created. Yeah. And Warner Brothers is basically like, nope, we're going to reboot Batman for the fourth time in the last 25 years. Yeah, some of that honestly, and I'm not trying to get too far off topic here, but some of the attention falling away from Superman the way it has can honestly be pinned on the rise of Marvel Comics because it used to be that in the D- in DC Comics, not just everybody could be a hero. Like it was very specific here. You know what I mean? 
And then with the advent of Marvel and the X-Men and radioact- radioactivity causing all like it exploded to where the old lady down the street could be able to fly. And that's kind of made it, people would aspire for Superman because it was something that they could not have. That's why they would reach for it even though they couldn't quite get it. You know what I mean? Now, I mean, if your dog was radioactive and bit me in a comics, I'd, I'd have powers of some sort. Unfortunately. Yeah, I mean that. Well, I mean that. That's the primary difference between Marvel and DC. DC is basically like gods among us. Marvel is, you know, flawed heroes that are figures of circumstance. Yeah. The MCU is a poison. <laughs> <laughs> On that. that, that ruins cinema for the most part. And I wish I could slap every one of you MCU fanboys in the face. Continue, Chris. On that note. When it was released, right, Scorsese. it's uh, late night previews. It pulled in $2.2 million on 1,215 screens. It's opening weekend, it pulled in $140.49 million. Pulled in $30 million on its secondary week. It was the fastest film at the time to hit $100 million. It hit it in 10 days. Now, how many screens total was it on, did you just say? 1,215 in keep 2,000 in, theaters. Keep in mind... In 2,000 theaters, theaters. keep in mind that the basic average for today's movie-going experience is anywhere between 4,500 to 5,000 theaters. It broke. Like, so it almost got to a billion, literally with with half of the theaters. Like, if it, if that movie had been released today, like, I'm just, (laughs) cat. Well, it broke numerous records when it debuted between its... Fastest to 100 million, opening weekend, opening three day weekend. Uh, its final take in North America was 251.2 million, internationally 160 million, for a grand total of 411 million. Uh, and it, at the time, was the fifth highest grossing film of all time and was the highest grossing DC comic book film until The Dark Knight in 2008. It took 19 years for a DC film to finally surpass that. Despite the box office success that it has, Warner Brothers has claimed that they lost over $35 million producing the film, and it is therefore unlikely to ever officially gross a profit. This is what is known as Hollywood accounting, and it saves their ass from having to pay money out. It was a massive critical success. Uh, Some did claim that it was a little too dark. Uh, Prince felt that his songs were fine, while some fans felt that the song seemed out of place in times. While, personally, to me, one of the greatest scenes in the film is when they show up to the museum with Party Man playing. Bar none. Absolutely. And after all that crying, after all the boohooing, the protests, the letters, and everything else, in 2022, Michael Keaton is seen as the definitive Batman on the live-action big screen by many fans. That man still associates himself as Batman to a very heavy degree. Now, when I say Batman, that Batman, wow, I'm doing it too. When I say that Michael Keaton associates himself as Batman so heavily, 
I mean, the man has given commencement speeches at graduations where he's ended it by saying, I'm Batman. <laughs> Tom Holland said that there were times on set of Spider-Man Homecoming where they were doing fight scenes, and right before the director would go action, he'd be close enough to hear Keaton muttering to himself. He's, he, he couldn't make out quite what it was, so one time he got a little bit closer and heard him sitting there hyping himself up going, I'm Batman, I'm Batman, I'm Batman, I'm Batman. Then they'd say action, and he'd jump right into it. The man was so excited and happy to be able to reprise that role in the DC films going forward. That's so awesome, man. I, well, don't don't forget about the time whenever Christian Bale found out that he was no longer Batman and that Ben Affleck had replaced him. Yeah. And so in an interview one time for some movie or something like that, it may have been for Spider-Man at that point in time. I can't remember uh, what movie it was, but the interviewer asked Michael Keaton, like, well, you know, uh, Christian Bale said that it kind of threw him into like a mini depression when he found out he was no longer Batman. Like, how did, how did you take it whenever, you know, you found out that you were no longer Batman? And he looked at her and just in total seriousness went, what are you talking about? I am Batman. Yeah. And then just walked away. That's going to be on that man's headstone. Yeah. <laughs> Guarantee it. Guarantee it. Michael Keaton. I'm, I'm Batman. Batman. <laughs> When people say they associate he is the definitive Batman, like he is. I mean, I can think of nobody at all that would be a better version of old man Bruce if they were to make a live action Batman Beyond movie or series, whatever they're going to do. If they are going to do that, Michael Keaton is the best thing they could do for that. Well, it would make the abs- the most sense because like Batman Beyond is obviously a sequel series yeah. to the animated series, and so yeah, it would make perfect sense to get a past Batman to be old man Bruce in order for it to be as accurate as possible. So, yeah. In a lot of ways, this movie really opened a lot of Hollywood Studios' eyes to how successful comic book movies really could be. Because, I mean, prior to this, the only other comic book movies they'd had that were successful any kind were the Superman films. And those had diminishing returns as they went. I want to say that uh, the first two grossed much more than the second two did. Uh, the first the first film did very very well. The second film, you know, round I, I don't know exact numbers, but you know about the same. And then by the time the third film came around, you know, Richard Pryor going with a much more tongue in cheek story and very campy and all of that um, didn't help things. And then by the time Superman four rolled around which while I personally love Superman 4 for a complete nostalgic type reason like Superman 3 did a lot of damage and just a lot of the things that went down in 4 was just no I did like the villain in 4 I love the villain in 4 Nuclear Man yeah dude I I still love 4 he he made uh, Nuclear Man made his canon appearance in comics about 3 years ago he got wrecked on like one issue and I hated it and it was done by Bendis and um, I liked Bendis's run on Superman and action comics and everything, but if there was one thing that I would say I wish he would have done different, it was that if you're going to go through the trouble of introducing Nuclear Man, actually introduce Nuclear Man. Yeah. Like, just don't bring him out for people who are actually fans of the character and of that movie to be like, holy crap, it's Nuclear Man, and then like two panels later, he's, he's yeah. dead. Like To a lot of people, this film is... I'm not gonna. When I you gotta bear with me for a second when I say this, but in some ways, an aspect of this film is forgotten amongst modern superhero movie fans because many of them 
if an odd casting choice is labeled for a hero or a villain, the first thing they say is, well, everybody thought Heath Ledger would be bad as the Joker. And looking at Heath Ledger was a fantastic actor. An Academy Award winning actor by that point. Michael Keaton was not. No, he was not. Michael Keaton was not in any by any fan. If somebody who was a fan of Batman told you, oh yeah, I love that casting idea, they were lying to you. They either didn't know who Michael Keaton was, or they knew him as too comedic of an actor and like not physically imposing. Like there's no way that is not Batman. There's no way. In a lot of ways, this movie is really the one that showed that depending on what they're wanting, absolutely any actor can do a good job in their role that they're going for with a superhero film. Cal can attest to this. I was a pretty vocal critic of Kristen Wiig being cast as Cheetah in Wonder Woman 84. Wonder Woman 84 was not great, but I actually liked her portrayal of the character in the film. She genuinely surprised me in it. I'll tell anybody she was the highlight of the movie for me. But, uh, yeah, I, I had a similar thing, and I know I talked about this with your, your the Dark Knight um, episode that uh, you and me did. Tomorrow, <clears throat> But, um, yeah, I was that way with Heath Ledger. I'm not even going to lie. I was one of those guys that's like, not watching the movie. He's going to ruin it. There's no way he can he can pull this off. I loved Heath Ledger. I was a big fan of him. I just did not think he had it in him. Then he died, very upset by it and all of that. And it wasn't until I went I went on a date with my girlfriend at the time, and we went to go see 10,000 BC, and the trailer for The Dark Knight was attached to it. And I had not seen any pictures or anything. I, like, I was like, okay, this is... It's The Dark Knight, so I was kind of like, eh. you know, like you know move on to the next one or whatever and it's the trailer where you hear jokers giving a monologue and he says you're just a freak and then says like me and then the explosion the cards and all that kind of stuff and whenever he did that laugh it's one of the very few times in my life that something affected me to the point where it sent a shiver down my spine and whenever i heard that laugh right then and there on the spot i said i was wrong And now I'll tell anybody that not only do I consider Heath Ledger's performance as Joker not only the best performance as Joker, not only one of the best performances in a comic book film, it's one of the best performances in the history of movies. Like, I put it up there with, like, Marlon Brando as the Godfather. If you remove the bat suit from Bale and you remove the face paint from Ledger, that movie still tremendously succeeds as a crime thriller. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, okay, The Dark Knight is like heat with spandex. That's a good way to look at it. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Speaking of spandex, I didn't mention this earlier, they wanted to deliberately avoid any kind of spandex-looking costumes for this, as well as the underwear on the outside, yeah. because they felt people are already crapping on this with Michael Keaton. Let's not give them more ammunition. Probably not a bad idea. And ultimately, I actually really like the bat suit they use in this, even if he has to move his entire body like a goober just to look up and down. Well, so did Christian Bale whenever uh, in Batman Begins. Yeah. That's the whole reason why he got a whole new suit in The Dark Knight, because, quote, unquote, you want to be able to turn your head. <laughs> so, yeah. And, of course, you can't talk about Batman 89 without mentioning what followed from it. Batman Returns, uh, which featured Danny DeVito as the Penguin, Christopher Walken and Michelle Pfeiffer. 
the Aw- immortal Michelle Fiverr. Look, this, the first movie was a Batman movie directed by Tim Burton. Batman Returns was a Tim Burton movie that featured Batman. Yeah, absolutely. I do not like Batman Returns. And I'm not saying like, oh, there are aspects about it that I enjoy and all that kind of stuff. Like, no. I do not like Batman Returns. I have not liked Batman Returns ever since I first viewed it. You know, Michelle Pfeiffer actually had to put a live bird in her mouth, and yes. PETA was pissed. Yes. And, yeah, I've never understood why people love it so much. I've never, like, there's there's nothing. There's nothing about the movie that stands out for me. Like They got Pee Wee Herman as a penguin's father. Like, I'm, I'm not going to lie, a <laughs> lot of times whenever people are like, well, Michelle Pfeiffer is Catwoman, even that, I'm kind of like, like <laughs> that, but yeah, it, that, it's it's very strange to go Batman, from the '89 film that I love almost every aspect of it, and then to the, the direct sequel to that, and I'm just 92? like, this is one of the biggest wastes of a movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and that movie actually directly impacted the rest of the franchise for the films because parents complained so much about how dark it was that McDonald's had difficulty moving their toys. So, Batman Forever came out. They recast Batman with Val Kilmer. Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey appeared as Two-Face and the Riddler. Don't you mean Joker 2 and 3? Yeah, Joker 2 and 3. (laughs) (laughs) You also had... uh, What's his name? Christopher something? Who are we? Chris O'Donnell. Chris O'Donnell, who played oh yeah the teenage, the teenager played by like a thirty six year old yes man. like people like, like to give crap like well yeah Tobey Maguire was clearly a teenager when he was in Spider Man Chris O'Donnell was way worse check out the twenty eight year old boy wonder yeah and yeah. like like the part when they drop him off at uh, Wayne Manor and you know when he's like all right I'm out of here it's like I'm just gonna go ahead and leave before child services show up and everything and I'm like I'm, I'm not buying it Chris. No. I'm not buying it. You're then, a man. You're a grown man. Child services aren't coming for you. Watching <laughs> that movie with a friend of mine one day, it gets to the point where they're at the uh, the circus. And as they're painting, now you see these two massive, oiled-up, tanned men in loincloths beating on a drum. And I'm like, a Joel Schumacher film, you say. Because <laughs> Joel Schumacher took over from Tim Burton. And Joel Schumacher's the one who added the nipples and the giant cod pieces to the bat suits and everything. Yeah, that's another thing. I know that a lot of people like to crap on um, George Clooney's take on Batman because of the bat nipples and everything like that. You know, that that began in forever. Yeah, it did. Like, a lot of people were like, oh, George Clooney, bat nipples and everything. Dude, rewatch forever if you can, if you can get through it. Oh, but, <laughs> because, like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into the whole which yeah. one I prefer, but yeah. Forever and Batman and Robin are um they're 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 low. It was a you low did, you did it was a low me. dark time in in Batman history. You did tell <laughs> me that you actually have less of a problem with Forever because it was at least what it was designed to. That movie was solely designed to sell toys. You mean Batman and Robin? Batman and Robin, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh yeah, I I have told I know, you know, you guys got to hear Ian's Oh yeah, to, we covered uh, that. That was a great one. That to, was a great time. To Batman and Robin, but I have maintained and I will always maintain that I actually have more respect for Batman and Robin than I do and that I ever will for Batman Forever. <laughs> because Batman and Robin was 
it was a it was a toy commercial. Yeah, that was turned into a movie. Basically, that's why the vehicles were so outlandish. That's why the uh, costumes were so outlandish and all of that. Like they, it was and multiple ma- changes of costumes. It was no less. A- it was aimed at children to sell toys. That's the point and purpose of that movie. Batman Forever was literally was legitimately. A studio and a director trying to put together a Batman movie, and whenever they were done, they were like, "The, the fans are gonna love this." Yeah. No, we didn't. Bear in mind, <laughs> bear in mind that coming off of the problem of not being able to sell merchandise and move Happy Meal toys because of how dark Batman Returns was, the opening line from Batman in Batman Forever, when he asks him, "What shall I can? I'll cancel the pizza. Shall I send? Would you like a sandwich? I'll get drive-through." That was solely put in there to make parents go, oh, we can go drive through McDonald's afterwards, get our kids happy meals, and there'll be toys in there. Follow that up with Batman and Robin. Coolio was meant to be the scarecrow going forward from that film. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. And, you know, they, they royally screwed up Batgirl. They... Oh, did they screw up Batgirl? Watching this man's reaction. The only good thing about Batgirl was the casting decision of Batgirl in that film. But everything else about it? Watching his reaction to when Batman and Robin are on their back on the ice and they click their heels together (laughs) and the skates pop out of the bottoms of their boots was so much more entertaining than even his reaction to the Bat credit card. That he'd okay, he'd had okay. that prepared for him. He knew yeah, that was yeah, coming. Okay. Then my favorite point while doing that episode, watching that movie with this man, it gets to the point where Robin is at Poison Ivy's hideout. She knocks him into the water, and he brings his head up out of the water, shakes his head, trying to breathe, and then they very clearly just rewound the image for him to do it again. At this point, Ian pauses the movie and goes. $140 million budget! He raged for almost 10 minutes at this scene before we could continue with the film. Oh, okay. man. And he, Having said all that, I still prefer Batman and Robin over Batman uh, Forever. Well, Batman Forever is just... It's, it's, a, it's a bad movie. Like That's just all it is to it. Like, I'll tell anyone, Batman and Robin has an excuse. It's aimed at children. There is no excuse for Batman Forever. It's just a straight-up bad movie. A movie aimed for children where where, uh, George Clooney overtly played Bruce Gay as well. Back in the 90s, that was considered a no-no. I mean, okay, I'm sorry. The the best thing to me about Batman Forever was Nicole... No, no, Batman Forever. Oh, I'm sorry. I said uh, the the be- the best thing about that was Nicole Kidman yeah, uh, playing Dr. Chase Meridian. <laughs> yes. Now, yes, sir. <laughs> uh, to, but we will discuss it when we're eating. But there's actually more stuff that went into what went wrong with Batman Forever to why they changed several things. About uh, don't get me wrong. I know there was a whole lot of behind Bruce the scenes. Bruce was supposed to have memory and amnesia issues. Yeah, like I know that there was a lot of like behind the scenes crap. <laughs> was trying to help him with was recover who he was. That's why they have the random flashbacks, the random things of bats. They left all the crap in to explain the amnesia thing and then didn't do it. Well, still, like I would I would I would much rather watch Arnold Oh, he had the time of his life. Yeah, he clearly had a blast. And, and you know it's funny. Schwarzenegger's a very smart man. Yeah. So him playing a doctor is not exactly a stretch. I'm not going to lie. I don't blame him. 
I could get a phone call tomorrow. Hey, we're going to put you in this big budget children's movie. We want you to play a very over-the-top villain. Sign me up! $140 million budget, $38 million of it was his salary. I'm going. I'm going. I don't care. It could be 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay. I don't care. I got my money. <laughs> what is the biggest payday an actor has received for a movie? I'm honestly not sure. I'd have to look that up. But I want to move on so we can yes. hurry up and wrap this episode up. Uh, the advent of this movie also fostered the explosion of superhero movies in theaters after oh, yeah. this. I mean, we got some great ones to come out of it that have established things for many years to come. We've had some that should have been good that were woefully mishandled by the studio, like The Phantom and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where we didn't get more out of that than we should have gotten. Uh, no 1989 Batman movie. I think it's very fair to say we would not have the Marvel movies the way we have them. We would not have DC movies the way we have them. To the point that, you know, John Favreau openly says, if it weren't for the 1989 Batman movie, he would not have been directing the 2008 Iron Man movie. Maybe that means we would have gotten the, the uh, Cronenberg body horror version that had Tom Cruise in it. Yeah. But. Okay. I do think there may have been an outside chance for there to have been at least a first wave of Marvel movies. It would have been similar to how they did the... Without 89 Batman, and the reason I say that is because... Sony had the rights to several characters? No, no. Um, I think the, like, the... The first, like, shot over the bow for the the first wave of Marvel movies, aside from Blade, would be the first X-Men movie. Yeah. And I think the reason for that... The yeah. I I think the, the... One of the reasons for its success was the success of the animated series yeah and the animated X-Men series would not have gotten made without the 1989 Batman movie because that directly started the animated Batman series which is what showed those different television studios that you can take a more serious take on these comic book characters and make movies out of them yeah but there were already children's superhero cartoons they weren't the same though they did not have the same like they had that mass appeal they didn't pull in near the numbers of money or viewers in comparison I'm just saying, I already said outside chance. Right. Needless to say, this movie has impacted Hollywood studios to a tremendous degree. It's impacted fans. It is widely considered to be the best Batman movie by a lot of people. The only ones that seem to really give it any kind of challenge are The Dark Knight. And maybe to some, Mask of the Phantasm. I'd put Mask of the Phantasm up against it. Yeah. That's fantastic. Like, it's a very fantastic, and it serves as just a prequel origin story for Bruce for the animated yeah. series. <clears throat> so, I remember really enjoying it, but I've only seen it once. Saw so. it, it's all in theaters. But no, I, I love this movie. I have, from a, for most of my life, I've loved this movie that I can remember. Oh, my story. Yes, your yes, story. My story. <laughs> Let's we'll we'll leave you with this story. Yes. Uh, so yeah, this was uh, I've told you guys before that I grew up in a very strict, diehard Pentecostal household. I've told you guys about the Ninja Turtle fiasco, about how that film almost got taken from me. This simply was, for Raphael saying, "Damn." This was the third time. The third time. But uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> this was the first film. That actually got put on a ban list for me and my brother. Like, you are not allowed to watch this movie. We were watching it. 
And the scene where Joker first shows up, like completely in costume and all of that, and as he's shooting his boss for double-crossing him, he's laughing. And my mother did not care for that. She said, well, you know, you're not watching this. Murder is not funny, kind of thing. And me and my brother, we were tore up, like, can't believe she just took Batman away from us. Like, how dare she and all that kind of stuff. And so... Me and my brother wasn't going to stand for it. And so she took the movie and she hid it from us. And me and my brother, we we go on a hunt. <laughs> we tear this house to pieces, like whenever she's not home or something like that. I'm just picturing two small children with their exact same pants on. Like we're looking for the Batman movie and we finally find it. Like she had it... Uh, like under, like in, in like a box under her bed, like in the bedroom or something like that. And we finally found it. And so me and Rob were naturally like, it's time to watch this movie. And so we would have to, anytime we felt like watching the movie, we would have to like do it to where like we could see the driveway. So we could see like whenever she would be coming home or something like that. My dad was always gone. Me and my brother were left by ourselves a lot whenever we were it children. Happened. But, um, you know, the 90s were a different time, and 80s as well. But, like, we would be on lookout, waiting for her to come home and all of that. And if if we were in the middle of watching it, and she was coming home, we'd be like, crap! You know, like, eject the movie, put it back in the box, Haul like, ass. run all the way to the back, like, put it in the box, put it in the box, you know, and, like, hide it and all of that. Now, all of that happened. This is going on, like, me and my brother, you know, all the way up to where, you you know, we're like seven, eight, nine, ten. Just going. That's how we would watch the movie. And finally, whenever we were like 13, 14 years old, somewhere around there, we're, we're in our room. We're playing a video game. Well, we had separate rooms at that point in time. But we're playing playing a game or something like that. And Mama comes in and she's holding the tape. And me and Rob immediately are thinking, like, she found Caught. somehow. Like, oh, my God, like, what's going to happen? She comes up to us. We pause the game. She hands us the tape, and she says, I think you guys are old enough now to <laughs> where y'all can watch this movie and it not, like, affect you. <laughs> and, me and me and my brother, we've seen that movie a thousand times by this point, you know? And we're just like, <laughs> we're like, thank you, Mama. Well, sure, I'm glad we finally got this movie, you know. And she's like, well, go ahead and watch it. You know, y'all been waiting this whole time, and me and Rob's just thinking her, thinking her, saying, like, we just watched it, like, two days ago, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, we had to stop our game to watch the movie, and the whole time that it's on, she wasn't in the room No, or but nothing. she still had to but act. Like, but we're in the room, and we're just like, it's a stupid movie, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Can't believe we're being forced to watch Batman. You know? <laughs> oh my! So the last thing I'm gonna leave y'all with before we head out, and I forgot to mention this a little bit earlier. The next time you watch this movie, pay attention to two to three different scenes. The first one I'm talking about is when Batman confronts Jack Napier in the chemical plant. That was the first time Jack Nicholson saw Michael Keaton fully dressed up as. Batman. The eyes getting big and everything, that was a genuine reaction from him because of how he looked. Two, 
When Joker is getting told by the doctor, hey, I did everything I could. Look at these tools that, you, that I have. You see a bunch of bloody, rusted-up tools inside. One of Jack Nicholson's earliest film roles was in the original theatrical release of Little Shop of Horrors. He played the patient for the dentist who did not want to be there. Fast forward to the 80s. They remake Little Shop of Horrors with Rick Moranis, Dean Martin, a couple other people. Dean Martin is playing the dentist. Bill Murray plays the patient who is a bit of a you know masochist. He loves the pain. The tools that the dentists are using on him are those exact same tools. And I don't just mean they were replicas. They were the exact same props. They did that to try and get Jack Nicholson to laugh when he saw them. Because he was in the original. Jack Nicholson reportedly looked at the tools and said, What do those mean to me? <laughs> was that my movie? <laughs> to be fair... It would take over two and a half hours to remove Nicholson's makeup after every time he was done filming, which also had to be factored into his time off schedule that he had. It's not a surprise that it didn't only go in three weeks. And finally, when Carl Grissom is confronted by the Joker in his office and sees the Joker's face when he says, call me Joker, that was the first reveal for not just... Jack Palance, but the, the crew and other cast members that were around watching, that was the first time any of them saw Nicholson as the Joker. Palance has said, similar to what Michael Caine has said, I have never been so startled as I was. Michael Caine outright forgot his lines in The Dark Knight when he saw Heath Ledger in makeup for the first time. They had to edit sound on that reveal because a stagehand could be heard saying, Mother of God, when they saw his face. That's awesome. So pay attention to those three scenes and you'll catch those three different like moments like that. But this was Batman from 1989. This has been planned for a long time to be done by the three of us. I'm glad we finally got to do it. Me too. This Thank was an you, absolute man. blast. I look forward to the next time we get to do a movie together. Oh, we'll pick one, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will. <laughs> so next week, next episode, I am doing Life of Pi. I have already started the notes for that. It was when this old opportunity came about to do this that I forgot them and went on to my notes for this instead. But I am going to do Life of Pi. Thank you so much, you guys, for listening to me. I have You have listened to me nearly 3,000 total times. I'm so thankful for that. I appreciate it so much. And I hope you guys enjoy the show. Tune in to Cal's show as well, of course, Kaiju Carnage. Uh, myself and Ian guested on his show. His episode's going to be dropping on Wednesday where we were doing an all things Harry ha- uh, Ray Harryhausen retrospective and what we thought about him. And the day that it's going to drop on Wednesday will actually be his 103rd? Second. 102nd birthday. I not, love not, that, me, not me, Ray not me, Ray Harryhausen. <laughs> <laughs> and I love when that kind of stuff happens, whether it's intentional or not intentional. The only time that's happened to me was when I did Aliens. I unintentionally released that on the 35th anniversary of the movie coming out. Which, that was a pretty cool coincidence to yeah, have happened. That's yeah. pretty cool. So, But absolutely tune in to Kaiju Carnage. We're both on that one. Uh, thank you guys so much. I hope you guys tune in to the next one. I'm Kid Kong. I'll see you at the movies.